Yeah, perfect. Awesome. Right on. All righty. So welcome to It's Been A While Podcast, everybody. My name is Xavier. David, as usual. And we are joined here by Vic Ferrari, uh, retired NYPD detective. This is going to be a, a story-filled episode, I'm sure. Uh, you want to give us a little bit of uh, your background, Vic? Just kind of, uh, you know, what's going on with you, your books and everything? Well, first, I want to say thank both of you for having me on your show. I really appreciate it guys like you that make my life easier to sell books. Yeah, absolutely. so I wanted to get that out of the way. <laughs> um, my, name, my name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired uh, NYPD detective. I did 20 years with the New York City Police Department. Um, I grew up in the Bronx, New York City, always wanted to be a police officer. I did 20 years, like I said, with the police department. And after I got out, I got into writing books. And my books, I've written four about the New York City Police Department. My books tend to focus on the funny and bizarre stories and things that happened to me and characters throughout my 20 year career. Okay. Yeah. Cause you, I'm sure that, yeah, the, the cast of characters you run into has, has to be, you know, different every day potentially with a job like that in a city like that, yeah, in a place <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, right. It, it, I mean, it's the public, right. In New York city, there's 9 million people. So you never know what you're going to get. And, the New York City Police Department at any given time is between 35,000 and 40,000 members. Damn. So there's a lot of characters in there too, you know yeah. what I mean? As well, as, you know, they do the screening the best they can to get the best product out there. But sometimes some bad apples or some lunatics get through. Definitely, yeah. So when did you, what uh, years did you work there? 87 to 2007. Okay. 2007, damn, all right. Um, yeah, and I guess when, or, so you've been doing the the, podcast circuit here for your books a little bit and i think you got a new one coming out is that right i'm gonna try i'm in development to have my own podcast but uh it's not out there yet i'm still i got another book i'm trying to get off the ground I mean, and you guys probably will know i mean it's a lot of work to put a podcast together it's yeah it's less fun than you'd think yeah there's i mean it's fun but <laughs> way too way too many curveballs and like just stuff not working when it should and you know all ready to record and then the computer decides to give you the middle finger so yeah there's been <laughs> plenty of right speed so you got to definitely be tech savvy and i'm not <laughs> yeah. so that's probably going to be my hold up but I'll, I'll figure it out probably by the end of the summer right nice <laughs> so yeah your new book that is uh it has to do with like going to a catholic school right yeah, my, my latest book, which isn't out yet, it's in uh, it's in the editing phase, is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's about growing up in my neighborhood in the Bronx and what it was like going to Catholic high school and basically prepared me for the New York City Police Department because I, I was rudderless and Catholic high school, I didn't want to go. I mean, I fought it <laughs> tooth and nail, but it was probably the best thing that happened to me. Yeah, I, I grew up Catholic. I never had to go to a Catholic high school, but my uh, yeah, my grandma did, and I heard some some stories that yeah, that if that won't prepare you for for that, I don't know what will. That there's some. <laughs> yeah, you step out of line, they tune you up. <laughs> so just to clarify, the books are nonfiction, or are they fiction like pretty strictly based on your life? They're novels, but here's the thing: I when I when I started writing books about my former employer, the two things I didn't want to do was get people in trouble or divorced. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, no, the stories are true, but I changed the names, the dates, the locations. I might move one character into another story, but I mean, th th there, there's a lot of truth in it. Gotcha. It's just I changed the names and everything. That makes I mean, sense. I couldn't have written these books. I don't think anybody would, I mean, with, with whatever imagination you have, you'd have to have 
the experience and been around these people to write these things. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, like, do you have any, you know, and I, and I, we, we definitely want to hear some of your absolute most favorite and bizarre stories going forward in the episode, but like, do you have any like fear, I guess, with sharing the stories? Cause it does, you know, it does seem like, like you said, you're trying to do it the right way to where you don't really get anybody specifically in trouble. But I, I was wondering just kind of on your, your nervousness of, of coming forward with some of it. Not now, but like when I first, when I put out NYPD through the looking glass, yeah, I was a nervous wreck because I didn't know A, how the public would deal with it and B, my peers. I mean, you know, I mean, most of my friends are retired or active NYPD members. So, you know, I was kind of nervous putting it out there and wondering what their response would be because when they, when they heard I was writing a book, they're like, oh, well, don't bring <laughs> this up and don't bring that up. And I'm like, just, just relax <laughs> and um the funny thing is now I, a, after i started writing these books now they come out of the woodwork like hey you didn't write about this guy <laughs> or you should have put this in there you know now all of a sudden like they're kind of like you know feeding me shit you yeah. know what i mean put in my book <laughs> but yeah that, that's that's good to know because yeah i was definitely curious on just kind of the, the you know it's a bit of a, you know, tell all to some extent and that, that has to be yeah conflicting in your brain. Just kind of like, I want to put these stories out. Should I put some of these stories out? <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I mean, I don't want, like, again, I don't want to get, I don't want to cause anybody any grief and I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy. I mean, look, obviously in life, you're going to work with people or know people or live next door to somebody that you can't stand. But I'm not one to like, just turn around and go, that guy's a total dick or that guy's a total scumbag. You know what I mean? So, I either a don't write about these people or b if I do I don't like totally blast them. Right, right. Try to be yeah unbiased with it at least. Yeah, and, and you know, yeah, and from what you know, I've I've skimmed a little bit and I uh, you know checked out you on a couple other podcasts and you, you seem very real. You seem very you know just uh, <laughs> just. I am who I am, whether <laughs> I like it or not. So what? Why'd you get out of it? I mean, was it just kind of like? Did, did, did your time as the, the officer ready to kind of move forward or was there any sort of thing that was your nail in the coffin? Well, yeah. So things were changing rapidly. Like my last 10 years, I was a detective doing organized crime. I worked in the NYPD's auto crime division. So that's chop shops, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, the mafia, um, car theft rings, <clears throat> excuse me. And I loved it. I mean, that was probably my best 10 years. The thing is like things were changing and like looking back, like a 20 year career with the New York City Police Department is like a merry-go-round ride. And it's fun and you're going up and down and everything's fun. But if you stay on that merry-go-round too long, Seabiscuit's gonna throw you on your head. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's like you could get, in, you can get involved in a shooting, you could get killed, you, you could get sued. Um, and like, again, I worked in the same place for 10 years. I was very lucky, but things were changing, right? So the supervisors were leaving, the guys I worked with were retiring. And then, you know, I've got new people coming in and now the focus was more on statistics than police work. So I said, you know what? As much as I don't want to retire and I'm really enjoying this, I'm going to kick myself in the ass if I stay an extra six months or a year or something, something could happen. And that's a terrible way to live. You know what I mean? When you're not doing something, you're always thinking steps ahead. So I just said, you know what, I, I could do something else. And, and I retired relatively young at 41 years old. 
Okay, yeah. You had a fair share of stories, you know, to share. So at least there was it's something to look forward to beyond, like, you know, like, oh, I got this selection to work with. Might, might as well tell the 20 years of wildness. Yeah, but that's just <laughs> it. I never gave any thought about writing a book. I was already retired many years, and oh, my okay. friends used to tell me, oh, man, you should put that in a book. You should write a book. And I was like, yeah, maybe I should write a book, you yeah. know? And then I, I just started writing these stories out, and then I grew them. And I, you know, I put it, my books have no beginning, middle, end. You can pick them up and go anywhere. They're just, a, they're just chapters with a theme and short stories in there of, you know, guys I worked with, or, you know, creative criminals or investigative cases I worked in. There's some dark shit in there too, yeah. but I, I try to put more of a comical spin on things. Okay, for sure. Yeah. And when, when like, I guess, so how early on in your, cause you would have been starting pretty young then in the police department 21 damn yeah <laughs> so i guess how early on did you really start to see like okay this isn't like perfect basically like when did you start to see the immediately or you know a little <laughs> fucking the... <laughs> so, so i grew up all right so just to give you a little background on me right i grew up in the bronx from the age of 10 i knew i wanted to be a new york city police officer i knew it at, when, at 10 11 years old me and my friends used to go up to the post office and steal the wanted posters. You know, like you go into the post office, the old days they had the wanted posters like Billy Ray Johnson wanted for fucking bank robbery in Kansas City. We used to steal the the, um, the wanted posters and go around the neighborhood. Like we got the shit kicked out of us. And we're going around like going up to like rough looking guys. This you, you know what I wanted to do? I grew up watching like the Rockford Files and the French Connection and the Seven Ups. I grew up watching all these cop movies. So in my mind, I was steps ahead. Like I was going to go <laughs> yeah. ass and take names. Right. So then you go into the police Academy at 21 years old. And the first thing they tell you is in six months, you're hitting the street. Don't listen to a fucking word with these old time hairbags in the precinct. Tell you it's all bullshit. <laughs> you got to listen to us. And very early on, I knew in the police Academy, they were full of shit because the instructors in the academy were only like a couple of years older than us. You know, yeah. you had like 26 years old, like how much street time did they put in? Yeah. You know what I mean? And what it is, you quickly find out it, it's the guys that hide inside and they study for the sergeant's exam or, or sergeant studying for the lieutenant's exam. And in the police academy, you have steady hours, you have breaks so they can study and put in the time, you know, to move up the ladder in the civil service world. So the police academy, I didn't particularly enjoy because, listen, I, I respect authority. It's funny, like for a cop to say, a retired cop to say this, but like, I don't like being told what to do. And that was like <laughs> six months of hell for me, just having to sit there and take it. But I did. And then you, you hit the street, right? And the first thing they tell you in the street is, don't listen to those assholes in the police academy. So you're like, well, like, which is it? And, you know, I... When I hit the street, it was in the middle of the crack wars in New York City, right? And I didn't know anybody. So I started my field training in the heart of the South Bronx. And I remember like back then, like nowadays they hold your hand. Back then they didn't. So like they give you a foot post in the middle of nowhere. Like I was on Fulton Avenue. You can Google what Fulton Avenue in the Bronx looked like in the 80s. I stood on a street where literally there were abandoned buildings. <laughs> on either side of the street. And I'm like, what the fuck is, like there wasn't anybody around, like nobody human, like there were crackheads wandering around with like lamps and shit they stole out of the yeah. apartment <laughs> trying to sell you stuff. And I'm like, you know, a sergeant would come by once or twice a day, he'd pull up, you'd salute him, 
You'd hand him your memo book, everything all right? He didn't want to hear, he'd say any questions, but he didn't, really didn't want to hear you. Yeah. He'd scratch your book and he'd drive off. And you're like, what the fuck? Like, it was like being dropped off in another planet. And then you know, people, are, you're 21 years old, you got a gun, you got a radio, you got a nightstick, but people are coming up to you with real problems and you're like scratching your head like, um, yeah. you're giving them the official police academy answer that doesn't work. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? It's, um, it was wild. I mean, there was a couple of incidents that there's a story in my book where in the police, there's one thing the New York City Police Department does not tolerate is corruption. If you're a corrupt cop, they're going to find you sooner or later and they are going to throw you in jail and they are going to throw the book at you. So throughout the police academy, they drum that into our head. If you see corruption, pick up that phone and call not, you know, call the internal affairs action desk. You have to report corruption. They had prosecutors coming into the police academy, giving like these sermons, like Pentecostal ministers, like, <laughs> you know, like you're going to go to hell and get a live snake shoved up your ass and burn in hell. If you, oh, wow. you know, what corruption. So like you're paranoid. So one of my first days on patrol as a rookie cop, I get this, this woman flags me down and she leads me into this like dirtbag apartment. Like she's got like sheets stapled over the window. They're using a fucking television set, a box, a cardboard box as a coffee table, right? Oh, God. <laughs> I'm in there she's complaining about her boyfriend. I want him out. He doesn't pay the rent. So I'm asking questions. Did he put his hands on you? No. Did he threaten you? No. Well, I can't throw him out. Is he on the lease? Yes. I, yeah, he's a dirtbag, but <laughs> he's not even here. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like I refer to the landlord tenant court and I left, right? So about two hours later, another rookie cop who had the adjoining post, he comes up to me and he goes, we got problems. <laughs> Fucking, we got problems. Like what? He yeah. goes, did you, did you respond to such and such a redress and, and talk to a woman about her boyfriend? I go, yeah, yeah. That was the first call I had today. He goes, well, she ran into me and she told me that she ran into her boyfriend and the boyfriend told her, don't call the cops no more because he gave me 50 or a hundred bucks not to arrest him. So I says, well, I never met the boyfriend. I never seen the guy. He wasn't even around. So he goes, what do you think we should do? I says, I think he's full of shit. He goes, we should call internal affairs. I go on myself. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking convince anybody can be convinced of anything, right? This fucking idiot convinces me to call internal affairs on myself. Right. I call internal affairs and they think it's a practical joke. They're like the guy's like, wait a minute. Your name is Officer Ferrari. You're 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 on a foot post, literally six blocks from here, and you want to report corruption on yourself. I'm like, yes. He goes, stand by. We'll be in touch. I'm like, he hangs up the phone. I'm like, be in touch. Like it's like the firm. Like I'm waiting for Wilford Brimley to pull up, and they're gonna snatch me off the street. Yeah. They're, yeah. Or they're gonna like right now. They're like fucking cutting into my locker, like rummaging through it. You know what I mean? Like they're going to be in touch. Like about a half hour later, this crown Vic pulls up. There's this big fat Irish captain in uniform, right? Big red <laughs> face, right? He rolls down the window. He goes, who the fuck calls internal affairs? <laughs> so I raise my hand. He goes, get the fuck in the car. So I get in the car and he goes, he goes, I says, am I in trouble? He goes, trouble. He goes, I'm the duty captain, which isn't internal affairs. He goes, internal affairs gave this to me. He goes, because they, they think you're either fucking batshit crazy or you're pulling their chain. He goes, why would you call those rat bastards on yourself? I go, well, that's what they told us in the police academy. He goes, stop listening to the fucking police academy. He goes, all right, I got to He goes, I got to figure out what this is. So we drive to the apartment, right? This old time Irish captain goes, 
sit in that fucking car. Don't touch the radio. Just sit there. I go, okay. He grabs a clipboard. He puts his hat on, goes into the building. I'm sitting in the car. Like I'm fired. Like it was a great 20 minutes as a cop. Like, yeah. I've been a- <laughs> right. Six Half months and three days out in the street. I'm going to get canned. I turn around <laughs> about 15 minutes later. I turn around. Here comes this big fat captain, right? He's got a man by the ear. And he's dragging the guy by the ear. And I'm like, what the fuck is this? He walks around to my side of the car and literally shoves his fucking dirtbag's head in the window. He goes, is this the fucking cop that you said you paid $100 to? He goes, I told you I was lying. Jesus Christ, I told you I was lying. He's got, he's shaking his head like a fucking rattle. He goes, you, if you call the fucking cops again and make up another bullshit story about one of my cops, I'm going to pull your ear off your fucking head. You understand? Oh guy, yeah, 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 I'm fucking sorry. And the guy runs off, right? So the captain gets back in the car. I'm like, what the fuck? fuck is going on like this is crazy yeah and he goes um he goes ferrari you'll go far in this job if you learn to keep your mouth shut he goes and report corruption when you see it not report an asshole that fucking is making a bullshit allegation <laughs> on you so we pull I, he goes who told you to call ieb and I, I tell him this italian cop he goes why would you listen to that jerk off he's got 15 minutes more on the job than you so this italian <laughs> on the corner eating a cannoli because we're an Italian neighborhood. This Irish captain pulls up. He goes, hey, Mussolini, get the fuck over here and just abuses him. He yeah. goes, why would you tell this jerk off pointing to me to call internal affairs on himself? So we settled it and that was the end of it. But it was just, it was things like that early in my career. I'm like, what did I get myself involved in? Like that would never go on today. Like probably nowadays, if I called internal affairs on myself, they would put me on modified assignment pending a lengthy investigation. But back then it was a lot different. Right. Yeah. But yeah. And it seems like, yeah, such a tug of war of being like, okay, well, like, I don't want to get in trouble. So maybe I should report this. And then the guy, the, you know, the captain's or whatever, the guy's like, don't fucking report stupid shit like that. Like just back and forth of just a bit of a conflict in your. <laughs> yeah. It's like you see a mole on your arm and you convince yourself you have cancer before you go to the dermatologist. Right. You, you know what I mean? It's like, well, I think, you know, you pull a groin muscle and you convince yourself you got a hernia. And the next thing you know, you're in the doctor's office and he's playing ping pong with your ball. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> You can convince yourself of anything if you really let your mind go. Yeah. So, I, uh, or you got some? Oh, yeah, I was going to say, just because you're talking about, you know, times changing and stuff, what was the biggest difference between, like, you're at the beginning in 87 and you're towards the end in 2007? What's the biggest difference between just your day-to-day and what you're going through? The supervisors were getting younger. So, I mean, shame on me for not taking civil service exams, but I never wanted to be a supervisor because I'm not big on telling anybody what to do. That was difficult for me because – here I am in my late thirties, early forties. And, you know, I've got to listen, I'm, I'm working a parade or a demonstration and I got to listen to some wet behind the ears, 25 year old that got his, you know, doesn't know what he's doing yeah. and I got to listen to him. So that was, that was, I mean, for me, that that's what I struggled with. Cause yeah, if you're thinking about what you were like at 25, you're like, what the hell? There's no way I could tell. <laughs> like, if yeah, but I wasn't telling anybody what to do. You know yeah. what I mean? Was, Just thinking um... back, like, I remember what that, what I was like. I wasn't telling anybody. How is this dude? Like, <laughs> you know, what's funny. What I noticed in the police department, there were a lot of guys, we call them empty suits, guys that don't make arrests, guys that hide those guys that sit in a radio car and respond well after the bad guy is gone. They, they show up after the fact and take a report as opposed to canvassing and looking for the bad guy or rushing there. Those are the guys that tend to take the, the, the supervisor tests. And it's the wildest thing you'll see some jerk off a dirt bag that you know for 10, 15 years hid. 
And then the next thing you know, he's like, go get him. Make this arrest. Grab that <laughs> yeah. guy. I got a couple of stories like that in my books where it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. Like this guy didn't even know where his handcuffs were. And now he's <laughs> telling people to lock up the world. It's like, yeah, he doesn't have to go to court and explain this nonsense. Yeah, exactly. But uh, so you were you said you're mostly auto theft and stuff. That's probably some of the most kind of open and shut cases in terms of just like oh you have a car that's not yours like it you know you're that's for sure kind of a guilty thing in terms of yeah but, you, but what's like we did everything like i would go and pick off garden variety car thieves right we did um we did lengthy investigations with chop shops and rings insurance fraud cases the mafia the you know um, the body shops but like, but but we also like I'm an, I was an expert in identifying cars with the vehicle identification number change, right? So that would get a little hairy with classic cars, right? So you okay. get a phone call from some guy. I had a 1968 Camaro that was stolen in the Poconos at a car show, and I see it driving around in Queens. So I'm like, you know, before I stop this guy and like creases fender looking for a hidden number you got to tell me everything you can about that car and sometimes they were right like sometimes a guy would tell me that's my car i know for a fact my kid threw up in the back seat and if you see in the back seat the carpeting was changed or there's a stain on the carpet or there's C a tear here and it's like cigarette burn like, in the ceiling that like... would be the first right, exactly yeah. a cigarette burn and like <laughs> I would go to that car if that thing was there and like, all right, now I'm going to start digging a little bit deeper. Right. Then you get people that were batshit crazy that would tell you that was their car. And it's like, the guy's like, listen, I'm the original owner of this fucking thing. You can tear it apart if you want, you know, yeah. it, it, it cut both ways. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So, you, so what was coming of the bigger, uh, like chop shops then it's, it sounds like there was some decent sized organizations that were getting <laughs> discovered. That's pretty wild. Yeah, um, well, before, all right, so before um, LoJack and uh, the North Star system, I think it was called, and then the, and then GPS, I mean, you stole a car. I mean, there was no way to really track it, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the five boroughs, the city of New York, we were averaging in the 90s 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So it was like, it was like shooting fish in the barrel. I could throw you two guys in the backseat of a car and like, come on, we're going to go pick off a stolen car. I mean, <laughs> as long as you had a computer in the car and you knew what to look for, you were going to find something. I okay. mean, you're either going to recover a stolen car or you're going to catch some balloon head driving around in one. Yeah. And there's different types of car thieves, right? So like you've got the pests, the pain in the asses. That That's children, right? So you got teenagers stealing a car as a rite of passage in the criminal world. They're going to school with the car. They're going to the movies. They're driving around. They're showing their girlfriend how cool they are. <laughs> then you got junkies, drug addicts. They steal cars to commit other crimes, or usually they're homeless. So they want, you know, they'll commit crimes with the car and then go in a park or something and get high and pass out. They treat it like their house. Yeah. They're easy to spot because those are the guys you'll see, like, you are illegally parked stickers still glued to their window mm -hmm. or. You know that bullshit tire when you get a flat and they give you that little balloon tire that's yeah. supposed to be good for 40 miles, but they'll drive it for 500 and it never gets a flat? <laughs> that you'll see. Um, you'll see the plates change. They never run the car through a car wash. You'll see the in the old days, the lock is punched or the vent window that they used to have. They'll have cardboard oh, okay. or fucking saran wrap. There's just so many ways to spot a stolen car. Well, there were, I mean, before key fobs and everything like that. Then you've got... Then you've got like the mid-range car thieves and that's guys 
one of you guys, I'm friends with you guys, I'm mechanically inclined, you blow the motor on your, you know, 2006 Honda Accord, I'll go steal one for you, we'll put okay. it in your garage, we'll take the motor out, you know another guy that'll fucking take a tow truck and he'll fucking dump it six blocks from here, and then you got the professional car thieves, those are the guys, you know, they stop by, they take orders, they're on that phone all the time, they go by the body shops, what do you need, I need a, a 2008 Nissan Maxima with Bose speakers, I mean, they shop to order, Damn. You know what I mean? And then have those guys too. I mean, they, they get paid well for what they do and, and they steal for chop shops, body shops, junkyards, and guys that export stolen vehicles out of the country. Damn. Yeah. It definitely seems like quite a organization with some of them to wear. <laughs> oh yeah. Way a whole very ranged. <laughs> That's wild. <laughs> so, uh, something I want to ask based on the, uh, dates you were there were you near the towers when 9-11 happened because that must have been oh, yeah. the biggest shock you know in terms of just like a normal day turning into but probably one of the more stressful days as a cop <laughs> yeah um that i'll never forget it was election day it was a tuesday and that particular morning so my office was in the bronx and uh that particular day we were my sergeant and I were supposed to go down to Manhattan. The courthouse literally is down the like a couple of blocks away from the Twin Towers. I locked this guy up for a couple of stolen cars, and he was going to become uh, a confidential informant. He was going to give us um, a DMV employee. I think it was up in Harlem that was pumping out, um, basically put put anybody's name on a driver's license. Oh, shit. <laughs> so we were going to get him out of jail and work with him to to do a sting to get this DMV employee. That's what he said, at least. <laughs> and what wound up happening is I was supposed to be down to court at 9 a.m. So I started my shift at 7 a.m. in the Bronx and I'm waiting on my sergeant. We got to get out of my office no later than eight to drive to, all the way down to Manhattan and find parking. My sergeant comes breezing into the office an hour late. And uh, I'm like, dude, you know, we got the prosecutor waiting on us. We got the defense attorney waiting on us. You know, we got to get they're going to get pissed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's farting around. One of the cops from downstairs comes running into our office and says, put on the news. A plane just hit the Twin Towers. So we got the news on. We're watching, you know, and then the second plane hit. So when the second plane hit, obviously we knew it was terrorism. They told us, get into uniform, stand by. And I was down at ground zero walking around by about 1.30 in the afternoon. Damn. And it was fucking wild. It was like, um, it was like something out of a movie. It was like a nuclear holocaust. The sun, the closer you got to the towers, the darker it was because the sunlight wasn't really making it through the, all those particles, of, you know, yeah, asbestos and dust and everything else. And um, it was just wild. I mean, the closer you got, and I tell this all the time, and everything was covered in that dust and gook. Mm -hmm. But like walking down Broadway, I saw thousands upon thousands of women's high heel shoes because all the women that worked in the financial district can't run in heels they took their heels Kicked off, and, off just yeah. and took off and like you know it, nothing made sense there was a guy in a spacesuit that walked by us with a fucking geiger geiger can or like <laughs> this guy with the government or is this a guy from new jersey that had a geiger can <laughs> waiting for today you know what I mean? like, just <laughs> yeah and i wasn't about to stop him so i mean there was just all sorts of crazy shit going on and i was down there from like 1.30 in the afternoon. I didn't go home till 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And they told us, you know, be back tomorrow at 5.30. We're doing this again. Yeah. So they had us going for the first week. Then they pulled us back. And then we were going to the dump because I worked in auto crime. So all the debris was going out to the uh, a dump in Staten Island. They had us chopping up the cars because so many vehicles were crushed. 
Yeah. They wanted to make sure there wasn't anybody trapped in the cars. And then they were also afraid people were going to put in phony insurance claims saying my car was lost down in the trade center. So we were doing that for a while. Um, yeah, it, it was wild. I mean, nothing in my career could have prepared me for that. It's, it's like a kid. It's, I felt like a kid, like when I first saw the pile, I'm like, you know, when you're a child and you see something for the first time that doesn't make sense to you, like, how does that even happen? How does that even work? That, yeah. That's kind of how I felt. But, um, you know, you get through it. Um, you know, we did that for a couple of months and then they, they pulled us back. Cause I mean, the NYPD has got 35,000 members. So right. Yeah. Pretty good about rotating us in and out that we weren't there too long. Yeah. Yeah. Right before we sat down, I like did the math real quick and I was like, Oh shit. I wonder if he <laughs> experienced that firsthand. That is oh, wild. Yeah, I was there. Damn. Yeah. <laughs> so what are, what, I guess, what are some other more just kind of like, obviously that's probably pretty high up on the list of just kind of most unbelievable moments, but any sort of other times where you kind of had that feeling of just like even being a few years into the job being like, Oh man, I'm, you know, a little bit over my head here. Like, <laughs> Oh yeah. I mean, sure. All the time it's, um, this time, like, especially like I was one, I was always looking for an arrest. So, and, and it's like anything else in life. If you look for trouble, you're going to find it. Eventually you keep turning rocks over. Yeah. You're going to find <laughs> it. Yeah. I mean, early in my career, I, I made a couple of really good gun arrests. Um, guy I worked with one time, we pulled over a gypsy cab and there was a teenager in the back seat. He had a fully automatic Mac 10, Holy shit. 45 caliber machine gun. You know, just driving around in the back seat of a cab in the Bronx. There's a, I'll tell you guys a good story. Um, in my book, NYPD Law and Disorder, there's a chapter, opening chapter called Embarrassing Moments. And that story I told you about the captain pulling the guy around by his ear is in there. But <laughs> so it's early 90s. My partner and I see this cab go by. There's a passenger in the back seat kind of with his head close to the driver and we had a lot of cab robberies so let's, let's just see if that cab driver's all right we go to pull him over now the cab starts burning lights so we pull the cab over and in the back seat there's three amigos passing around a brown paper shopping bag and the bag rips open and there's four kilos of coke in there <laughs> so we place them under arrest right i go into the station house and it's like i won the fucking stanley cup i'm parading around with four kilos of coke everybody's coming over taking photos with me and this is fucking great right so the coke goes down to the lab the amigos go down to down to court i've got to go to court later that night and speak with a district attorney to draw up the arrest to file an accusatory incident right i'm still in uniform i drive down to the courthouse it's in the dead of winter and the courthouse basically it's, it's not a great neighborhood and after five o'clock it's a ghost town there's nothing really to eat there's a diner down the block but i i hated that place so they had just opened up a new shopping center across the street from, from um, the district attorney's office. I had a nice food court. I'm like, oh, this is a nice treat. I'll, I'll get something nice to eat, celebrate my arrest. I go in there. I get an Italian dinner. I get meat, uh, chicken parmesan, a veal palm and spaghetti. Ooh. I'm sitting there in my uniform. I'm like, this is great. I'm going places. I got, <laughs> you know, this is a great arrest. My stomach goes like throughout my whole life. I've always had problems with my stomach. I'm like, oh man, I got to take a dump. I got to go bad, right? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not going to the courthouse across the street because that's like a dungeon. <laughs> Fucking missing toilet paper. I'm like, oh great, the food court. It, you know, the, the bathroom's gonna be brand new, right? I go into this bathroom. It's like a cathedral. No one's taken a dump in there before. It's antiseptically clean. There's not a soul in there. I go into the stall. I shut the door. I take off my gun belt. I put my gun belt on the hook. 
I drop my pants. I sit down. I'm getting ready for liftoff, right? <laughs> Next thing I know, I hear the bathroom door kick open. And I hear four or five teenagers roughhousing. They're hitting the fucking uh, the hand dryers. They're turning on the sinks. They're just banging into the walls. I'm like, fuck. You know, yeah, I'm a cop in uniform, but I'm vulnerable. I got my fucking pants right. down. Yeah, yeah, shit. <laughs> right, taking a shit. So next thing you know, it gets really quiet. And I'm like, did they leave? Did they see the legs out of the store? They decide to knock this shit off, right? I'm like, I better finish this up and get going, right? Just, I just, I'm sitting on the ball and I look up. One of the guys, one of the kids went into the next stall, jumped up on the toilet, and is now reaching over the oh, stall wall to grab my gun belt off the hook. Shit. I went, motherfucker. So I jump up with my left hand trying to pull up my pants. With my right, I grab him around the neck. And when I pull him, what do I do? I inadvertently pull him closer to the gun belt. Now he grabs onto the gun belt. Holy shit. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> so now I let go of my pants with my left hand, and I'm just throwing roundhouses, right? <laughs> just punching the shit out of him. I'm like, let go of the fucking gun belt, right? While I'm fighting with him, his friends burst into the next stall. They grab him around the waist, and now I'm doing a fucking tug of war with this kid over there. <laughs> so now the aluminum wall is bucking, right? Those things aren't, like, built yeah, for yeah. a 135-pound kid, right? The thing is, like, the kid finally lets go of the gun belt. The gun belt hits the floor. He's all sweaty. The shirt's coming off. I let go of him, or he slips out of my fingers. They go crashing into the next stall, right? I get my, I get my pants on. I get my gun belt on. I come running out. They're gone. I run into the food court. There's like a 300-pound porter with like one of them floor buffing machines you saw in high school with, with his fucking Walkman on. I'm like, dude, dude, dude. He takes it, he takes off the Walkman. He looks at me. I go, did you see a bunch of kids run through here? He looks up, burps, and goes, no. So, like, in the book, I write, what was I supposed to do at this point? Call the police on myself? Yeah. The responding cops that would have showed up from that priest, I would have been the fucking laughing stock of the Bronx had yeah, I gone Almost got route. shot so, while shitting. Yeah, that would have oh, been. Oh, they would So, I was like, that, that story would have circulated through the Bronx. I mean, law enforcement community is very tight-knit. So, I decided to keep the story to myself until I decided to write this book. Yep. <laughs> and I said, you know what? That's a pretty good story. I should throw that one in there. That is awesome. Yeah, that would have been, yeah, the, just such a big high from that one arrest down to. <laughs> right, exactly right. I was on top of the world. Yeah. Then I was like, you know what? My luck, that fucking Coke is going to come back as baby, you know, lactate or baby. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow, drywall. It <laughs> no, it didn't. It was, it was the real deal. The good stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that really like uh, I guess you know a lesson right there within itself of just like to never get uh, too cocky on just the <laughs> kids are gonna bust in while you're you know you're taking 100% the dump. <laughs> right, don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> so one thing I when I, I you know I kind of panned through a couple podcasts and and read some of your synopsis and stuff. It seems like a lot of cops from other places and countries even would come and to come get a tour from the NYPD. Yeah. So that seems like that happened a weird amount. And do you, I guess how often did that happened and kind of why just to see like one of the more interesting places get, you know, how yeah, it works. Well, like, you know, c cops are nosy, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've done it. I mean, I went to Europe a couple of times and as soon as I saw a cop, I'd like show my police ID and like, just thought, you know, if they spoke English, just, you know, how does it work and how does things work? Yeah. So every now and then, because New York City is, always, you know, it's the biggest police department in the world. So yeah. we had, yeah, I'll tell you two quick stories. So <laughs> I, I worked in, I worked in this unit and uh, 
Lojack was becoming a thing, the tracking device and all Lojack liaison said, listen, I got these guys from the Moscow police department. Can I bring them by tomorrow? So yeah, I don't care. Right. So, you know, we're expecting these guys in suits and stuff. These guys look like bouncers at a fucking club. Like they were middle-aged <laughs> men. They had fucking like hands. Like they look like fucking mitts. You know what I mean? Like all smoking cigarettes with like the furry hats and shit. I mean, it wasn't dead of winter, but still like these guys, you know, like, all business. So we're showing them, you know, the, the building and everything. And they, they were like kids with the police car putting the sirens on. And <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when the tour was over, um, the, there was like one guy that spoke English. And he was probably a fucking KGB agent, right? <laughs> He's like, we have a gift for you, you know? And they gave us these, I got it somewhere in the house. If I knew you was going to tell the story, I would have brought it out. <laughs> It was like this. It looked like an Olympic gold medal. No, not a gold, a bronze medal. Okay. And it said something in Russian that, for all I know, said "kiss my ruski ass." Yeah. <laughs> but it said it, it was supposed to be something like the 60th anniversary of the Moscow police. But it was really nice of them to give to us, right? And we had nothing for them. Like we're sitting around, like typical NYPD fashion. Like no one said, "Listen, we should give these guys something." So I go, "All right, just stand by." So I run upstairs with a couple of guys. I grab a garbage bag, a black fucking glad bag and we start going to our lockers throwing old nightsticks and hats and fucking shit that's going in the garbage but yeah. it's got nypd written on it right we come down in a garbage bag yeah you know, it's like such a stomach these guys didn't give a fuck that bag got ripped open like these guys were fighting over shit i love hot you know what i mean like they were, we had to do a second fucking trip upstairs <laughs> And this guy I worked with who was a real smart ass, he goes, No wonder they fight over toilet paper. I go, You better shut the fuck up. Like, you see the size of these guys? Like, we just gave them weapons too. Yeah. Oh, they're bigger than your friend over here. So, the other story I have was um, I was a detective in auto crime, and uh, I hear, so we were in different teams, and I heard a sergeant talking to two, two, two guys in his team, they were arguing. And the sergeant said, listen, there's a, there's a representative from the Tokyo Police Department. I want you guys to go into, go into Manhattan, pick him up, and give him a tour of the Bronx. And a friend of mine, I'm still very close to me, goes, what the fuck am I supposed to show him in the Bronx? Yankee Stadium, a chop shop? And the sergeant <laughs> goes, yeah. He goes, here's 20 bucks. Take him out for lunch. He goes, where the fuck am I going to take this guy for $20 for a nice lunch, right? So my friend was pissed, and him and his partner leave. So I just thought it was funny. I just kind of caught the conversation. It was going one ear out the other. About an hour and a half later, this guy returns, this detective. And I see him fishing around for keys for another car. And I go, and I made a joke of it. I go, where's Tokyo Joe? And he goes, you want to see something funny? I said, yeah. And I love this guy. We're still good friends. We, he goes, come on, I got to show you something. So we go into the parking lot. And sitting in the back seat of a filthy Buick Sentry, there's a little Japanese guy laid out in the back seat in a salmon-colored polo shirt with an expensive camera on the floor and a half a bottle of Gatorade. What the fuck happened to him? He goes, too much sake. He goes, he was out last night with the Vice guys. He goes, he's fucking hungover. He goes, he's falling asleep in the car. He goes, I'm just going to leave him in the back seat of the He goes, I'm going to leave him in the back seat of the car. He goes, come on, I got 20 bucks. Let's go get lunch. Goes, I can't leave him in the fucking back seat of the fucking police car in the South Bronx. He goes, he fucking sleep it off. Come on, let's go. So me and his partner and this guy jump in the car. We get lunch. We come back an hour later. We go into the parking lot. Tokyo Joe is gone. We go, oh, fuck. So 
we're in a really bad neighborhood. If he came out of that parking lot, and made a right, he's going towards the housing projects. With his nice a camera. <laughs> guy with an expensive camera in that neighborhood is going to get robbed, yeah. right? If he makes a left and makes it back to the precinct and the sergeant figures out that we abandoned this guy, there's going to be heads rolling. Like, you can't leave a fucking guy that doesn't speak a word of English in the South Bronx, right? With an expensive out, yeah. camera. Yeah. So I, they jump in their car and they start canvassing the neighborhood. I run back to the office. And when I go into the office, I run into their sergeant and he goes, did you see them with that with that Japanese guy? And I'm like, no. So I knew he didn't go. He didn't make the left. Right. Yeah. So I grab a set of keys. I jump in a car and now I start driving around the neighborhood. About 10 minutes later, about three, four blocks away. In the South Bronx on abandoned buildings and sometimes not abandoned buildings, when someone gets killed, be it a drug dealer or it is a civilian, they'll paint a mural of them on the on the side of the wall. So this drug dealer was his name kilo had his picture uh his and, and his beloved dog tray bag which is three dollars <laughs> worth of weed it, it was spread was there was a mural on the side of an abandoned building and as i come and driving down the block tokyo joe there's a little japanese guy with an expensive camera taking photos at the mural so i slam on the brakes right I, he stops he turns around and i got my detective shield out and he's like, oh, he comes running over. And he was short. like, I'm not a tall guy, but he was short. Like, yeah. he held me around the waist. I felt like someone that lost their kid in Disney World. <laughs> so I throw him back in the radio car and I get on the radio and I tell my two friends, like, I got to be cryptic. I'm like, I found what we're looking for. Like something like that. Yeah, vague to. <laughs> so we get back to the parking lot. And my two friends are, they're laying into this guy. You stupid motherfucker. Why would you blah, blah, blah. And I'm like. He gets it. He, you know, it's like he gets it. Don't stop yelling at this poor guy. Yeah. So they took him back to his hotel where he slept it off. And then their sergeant starts busting their balls about, did you get a receipt? He goes, like, how did it go? And they go, fine. And he goes, did you take him out to lunch? Yeah. It sounded like parents asking their kid how yeah. their school day was. Yeah. What did he get? So like, like, what were they supposed <laughs> to do? Tell him that we almost lost this fucking guy. So he goes, oh, do you got a receipt for lunch? And Danny goes, bodegas don't give receipts. Which is a little candy store where we got our sandwich. Yeah, but yeah, that's a, story. that's a story from I think uh, Lauren Disorder. Okay, yeah, I thought that was interesting that they were just kind of coming to check out tours. But yeah, I guess if it is the biggest like police force in one of the most diverse cities, it's good good learning project to kind of just to see how things are working elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, those are, like those were my two. I'm sure there's more, but those are the ones that really stand out to me because the Japanese guy that went missing, like. You know, yeah, could be on an episode of Unsolved <laughs> Mysteries, you know, and have you seen this man? Like that he yeah, he wasn't built or equipped to handle the South Bronx and the Russians, they would have cleaned house. Those guys were fucking <laughs> no joke. <laughs> so you I was gonna say, obviously your stories have like a comedy element to them. Obviously, they're great stories. Have you ever thought about, you know, these books get a movie deal? Who's playing Vic Ferrari? <laughs> oh man. Well, Vic Ferrari in his twenties? I don't know. Like, if if they were gonna portray me now, I'd love like Gary Oldman, okay, or De Niro uh -huh. or something. I'm a little taller than Joe Pesci, so that's not gonna work. Um, I don't know, man. That that's a really good. I'd have to think about that. Yeah, yeah, we would definitely be watching that. That's a good <laughs> hey, gotta be ready for when they come with that big. You know, seven figure deal. I think they'll make those decisions for me and tell me to yeah. sign <laughs> the line and keep my mouth shut. 
I also saw there's a Vic Ferrari band. I don't know if you saw that. It was like yeah. a cover band. I was, <laughs> it appears to be no affiliation, but I thought that was interesting. No, I was no, no. This is another Vic Ferrari that wrote a book like 30 years ago about how to get out of a, a loveless marriage. Oh. So that's not my book. <laughs> It's a hell of a name, by the way. It definitely is, uh, you know, immediately catches attention, Vic Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, especially I worked in the auto crime division, right? Right. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> so any other just kind of like, you know, favorite stories you have? Anything particularly yeah. like? What do you oh, want to hear? Okay, you, you want funny and uh, funny and dangerous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's get a funny and dangerous. All yeah. right, I'll tell the Hansel and Gretel story because that's one of my favorites. Okay. okay. So it's the early 90s. It's the early 90s, you know, in my early 20s, and cops go to cop bars and mingle with cops from other precincts. So, you know, we're hitting on girls at the bar, and there was this cop who worked in the next precinct who on the side was an amateur magician. Okay. So we're going, we're talking to girls at the bar, and the magician would come over every fucking time, and he starts pulling flowers out of his sleeve and pulling coins behind girls' ears and the fucking balloon out. He's cock-blocking us with magic, right? <laughs> so... I go to his partner, who actually became my partner later on in life. We used to call him Cancer because he killed more people than Cancer. But anyway, <laughs> Cancer worked with the magician. So I, I say, would you get him the fuck out of here? Like, he's just ruining our act. And he goes, you know, I wish this guy would take his NYPD career as seriously as he did as his, his magic act. So a couple of weeks later, the magician and Cancer get called to this um, six-story walk up in the South Bronx. And it, the call is calls for help in the basement apartment. They go into the basement. It's on a midnight. There's two doors. They go to door number one. They start banging on the door. And nobody answers. My old partner goes to knock on door number two, and the magician stops him. The magician goes, don't knock on that door. We made all this noise down here with our radio. If anybody called the police, they would have come out. My old partner, uh, Cancer, goes to knock on the door again. He goes, come on, I'll buy you a cup of coffee. They leave. What they didn't realize was behind door number two, the superintendent of the building was selling coke out of the apartment. And he got addicted to it and he fell behind on his payments to his wholesale. Well, in the drug world, they don't send friendly remind friendly notices or cancel your cable. Right. Right. So what they did was it's an old <laughs> gypsy trick. They brought an attractive female with them. She knocks on the door. The soup is a cokehead. He sees this hot looking chick. Like, he opens yeah. the door. They bum rush him into the apartment. They're fucking pistol whipping him, beating his ass. Where's the money? Where's the drugs? He don't got the answers. They shoot him in the head. They roll him up in a carpet, they take him out of the apartment, and they throw him in the furnace. Holy shit. <laughs> so while he's going up like a Puerto Rican fire log, they go back to the apartment, and now they're ransacking the apartment. While they're ransacking the apartment, Cancer and the magician are outside about to knock on the door. <laughs> so they come up with a plan. The two guys tell the girl who she's in on it. They go, listen, if those two fucking cops knock on the door, let them in and lead them towards the kitchen. And I think they were Yugoslavian. Just start talking in Yugoslavian and keep, keep pointing to the kitchen. Once you pass the threshold of this doorway, throw yourself on the floor. We'll come back around. We'll kill the cops. We'll throw them in the incinerator, and we'll get the fuck out of here. We'll just, you know, go for the trifecta. Yeah, that's a plan. Yeah, damn. <laughs> they never knock on the door. Ooh. So they leave. About a week or two later, the Supers got family. What the fuck happened to this guy? They go to the detectives. He's vanished. Um... The detectives get involved. They see the apartment's been ransacked and they see that there was a 911 call there the weekend or two weekends before. So they bring in my old partner and the magician. They go, did you notice anything different? No, no, no. But my old partner said, you know, the thing is when we were leaving, 
there was a car parked on a fire hydrant and I gave it a ticket. Well, that was the getaway car. Okay. And that belonged to the female. So they bring the female in and then she rats out everybody, of course, trying to like distance herself from being in on it and using her car. They get the two hitmen, they lock her up. Then they had to go back to that building in the middle of the winter, like February, and shut the fucking heat off for like a day. Oh my god! So that thing would cool off to get the guy's skull and bones out of the um, out of the furnace. So that's Ooh. a story from the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. I think that one's called "Last Night a Magician Saved My Life." Okay, yeah, old magician's trick to <laughs> yeah, not. Yeah, that's brutal to just like, all right, we'll just fit two more bodies in there and be good to go. Like that is yeah. wild. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they, these guys were all business, you know. Holy shit! Well, God, I mean, that is uh, that's probably a good note to end it on. That's a crazy, crazy outro there. Yeah, if you want to hear more of your stories, where's the best place to get your books? All my books are on Amazon. Just look up Vic Ferrari and Kind, and all my books are paperback. For ten bucks and uh, ebook download for two ninety nine. Oh, right, awesome! Yeah, we'll we'll get some of those links in the description. And you Thank know, you. sounds like you got quite a quite a few stories. Couldn't can't get them all in one episode. So maybe when that next book comes out, we can have you back on here a couple more. Anytime. Awesome! Right yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, I'll, man, this is awesome. I'll let you know when this is up. I'm gonna try to get it up in eight hours or so. I'll get it up pretty yeah, quick. Send me so. the link. I'll post it. Hell yeah! Sure. Thanks so much for coming on, Vic. It was a blast. Yeah, man. Have a great thank rest you, of your day. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. See ya.